Sunday morning, we, we pray that you would give us the right place at the right time for the right price so that you get glory and that we have a place where we can make disciples and impact a neighborhood or a community somewhere. Land us where you want us to be, Lord. Uh, we're looking, we're, we're anticipating, but we're also waiting on you and asking you to deliver and to provide. Now, Lord, as we, as we go to your word and, and listen to you, I pray that we'd be all ears and that we would hear what you have to say, that we would revere your word and that we would take to heart what your spirit is telling us through your word so that we can continue to grow to maturity, grow in wisdom, and grow as disciples of Christ. We thank you, we praise you, and, and give you great glory, Lord, through Jesus. Amen. And invite any of our kids can go with Mr. Zach to Kids Church today. And Miss Abby, too, help with Kids Church today. Want to... Uh, just give uh, a little bit of a heads up as I was preparing and working on our sermon today. It's going to be longer than normal. And try to keep them under a good time period, but today's going to be longer than normal. Today, what it's going to be, and actually today and the next six weeks, we're going to be taking a look in the mirror and examining ourselves. You see, we're in 1 Peter doing our eight-week series in 1 Peter, and last week we looked at the first 12 verses, remember, and in the first 12 verses, Peter told the believers in Asia Minor how God was at work in the past. He had redeemed them, he had chosen them, he had forgiven their sins through Christ, all these things he had done in the past, he was at work, and he was at work in their present where he was transforming them through trials that they were going to be facing. Remember, it's 64 AD. That's the year that Nero burned down Rome and blamed the Christians. So persecution had started in Rome, where Peter wrote this letter, and it was spreading out across the Roman Empire, persecution of Christians. And if it hadn't arrived in Asia Minor yet, it would arrive pretty shortly. So he's telling them God is still at work in those trials they faced. That was the first 12 verses. Now, the remaining part of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, he is telling them because of the work that God has done and is doing, this is now how we should live. So we're going to look at today and over the next six weeks, how should we live in the world around us? How should we live? We're going to look at as families. How should we live in suffering? He talks about leadership over these next six weeks, including today. So today's going to be a little bit longer. I apologize ahead of time, but it's a, it's a look in the mirror day. So we're going to teach God's word, but also apply how is God at work changing us, transforming us? Because at this point in time, Peter had been a believer and follower of Christ for almost 40 years. He was 37 years prior to this when he began following Christ. So he had had years to grow and mature. But guess what? He was still growing and maturing. He was still looking in the mirror. I've been a believer in Christ for 45 years, and I'm still growing. And there's more growth to come, more maturity to come. You may have been a believer for less than a year, for five years, 10 years, 40 years, or more. But wherever you're at today, we still look in that mirror. 
How is Christ transforming us and changing us? And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, remember last week, Peter began his letter by calling us strangers. In 1 Peter 1, this is what he said, very beginning of the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm writing this to God's elect, strangers in this world. We're going to see that word again today, strangers. We're going to see that word again next week, strangers. Well, we're called to live, <coughs> excuse me, to live as strangers. Now, this word stranger means that I'm a resident here, but this isn't my home. This isn't where I belong. It's not my permanent residency. I'm just sort of passing through. It's almost when you stay overnight at a hotel on a trip. You're not a residence there. You're just staying there for a season. That's what we are in this world. We're just staying here for a season. Our true home, our true residency is in eternity. And that's what Peter was telling them, to live as strangers in this world. And now he's going to start describing what does a stranger look like? What are the values and the habits and priorities of strangers in this world? Let's pick up today in verse 13, which says, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, we're going to stop here. And as we go today, I'm going to read and we're going to, we're going to look in the mirror from time to time. But he tells them here, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you in the future when Christ is revealed. So he says, don't live for the now, live for later, live for eternity. And he starts off by telling us two ways to live for eternity, two ways to live as a stranger, two ways we, we look in the mirror. First of all, he talked about preparing your minds for action, <clears throat> which means that we take on a mind that's on defense and a mind that's on offense. Now, if you watched any of the NFL football draft this past Thursday, Friday, Saturday, did anybody pay attention to that? Um, your Cleveland Browns, or if you're Zach, your Buffalo Bills, or some of you might be your Pittsburgh Steelers, when they were drafting players, they picked players that were both offensive players and defensive players. When you have a basketball team, you have a, a player plays offense and defense, and our mind, is the same way. We play defense where we guard against things coming into our mind and we play offense where we're, we're bringing intentional things into our minds. Now by defense, I mean that we guard against the lies of the enemy. Jesus refers to Satan, the devil, as our enemy. He's not our friend. He wants to tell us things and slip thoughts into our minds that are not helpful for us, that are contrary to God's word. And so we are to guard against those things. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, we're told that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And that's what the enemy does. He tells us lies about God. If you're familiar with Genesis and Adam and Eve in the garden, the enemy began by telling Eve lies about God. He will tell us lies, slip things into our mind. If you're going through a difficult time or a trial, like Peter said they would do, the enemy might tell us that God doesn't care about you. He's not aware of what you're going through. He just doesn't care. But the truth is, God is keenly aware. 
and he does care, and he's using those difficulties to transform us, to craft us, to be like Christ. Or the enemy might tell us, God wants you to be happy, so do whatever you want. Whatever feels good, God wants you to do that because it's making you happy. Well, that's not true either. God is at work to make us holy, not happy. And when we live in holiness, that's what brings us ultimate happiness. The enemy might lie to us and say, after you've done something wrong, after you've sinned and you're ashamed about it, Satan will tell us, the enemy, God can never love you. You can never come back to him. Well, it's just a lie to keep you in bondage to sin rather than turning to Christ in repentance and forgiveness. So we take these thoughts captive. Or the rest of the verse says, we, this is what we do. We take captive these thoughts and we make them obedient to Christ. So we're playing defense. We're on guard about these things. And that means we control what we allow into our mind. That means that we closely monitor the things that we watch on a screen, whether a TV, a movie, or on our phones or devices. We monitor those things, the books that we read, the games that we play. What are the messages that we're allowing to come into our brains? Are they lies or are they truth? Are they pure or are they corrupt? There's certain things then that we won't watch, that we won't read, that we won't listen to because we're playing defense. We're guarding our minds. If a corrupt or a sinful or a lustful or a dishonest or a greedy or a profane thought or image or word starts to enter our minds, we can shut it down, but we arrest it. We take it captive and we make it obedient to Christ. We play defense. We also play offense. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world for strangers, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what I do is I, I fill my mind with God's word. That's what transforms me. That's what tells me how to live. God's word tells me how to be a stranger, how to bring honor to God on earth and store up treasure in heaven. See, a mind that's on the offense, it reads God's word, it studies God's word, it meditates on God's word, it memorizes God's word, it uses God's word for the decisions that we make, and all that takes time. It takes time every day spending time in God's word. You see, God's word has something to say about how we handle our money. If you want to know how to handle money, look to God's word. If you want to know how to make your marriage work, Look to God's word. If you want to know how to raise your kids the right way, and we're going to look at this in a few weeks, how to raise our kids, how to make marriages work, because Peter addresses them in God's word. If we want to know how to make relationships work, or how to have a work ethic and conduct ourselves on the job site. If we want to know how to address anxiety, worry, and fear. If we want to know what to, how to go about getting rest in this life. We look to God's word that's going on the offense. So we put our minds on defense, put our minds on offense. That's how we live as strangers. Peter also said that a stranger has self-control. Simple. Be self-controlled is what he said in verse 13. And this, this word, it means to exercise restraint. Do not let your urges 
control you. Now, there are three forces at work to control you. The first one is your own flesh. We were born with a sin nature. Our flesh is our natural inclination to do what is selfish. We're born selfish. You're not going to have to teach Mary Ann how to be selfish. It's going to come naturally. We don't have to teach any of our kids how to be selfish. It comes naturally. That's our default. It's our flesh. It drives us and urges us to do what we want to do. Selfish. That's the first force. The second force is the world. The world around us. You see, there's a, a popular direction and flow in our culture. That's the majority. And the pressure is to conform to that flow. It's called a secular worldview. It pushes us in a certain direction. An example would be, in our current world, there's this popular flow and direction of being accepting towards any type of lifestyle, any type of sexual orientation that you so choose for yourself. And if we disagree with that because God's word disagrees with that, we're seen as outside that flow. And there's this pressure to conform and go with that flow. That's trying to control us, the flesh, the world, and the other one is the devil, pushing us and trying to persuade us to sin and disobey. Now, Peter, he faced all of those personally, the flesh, the world, and the devil. You see, in his early days as a disciple of Christ, he was lacking in self-control. He was very impulsive. If you read the Gospels, he would speak before thinking. He was impulsive, and he regretted what he did. He regretted what he said because of his last lack of self-control. So when he said this to, in his letter, he was speaking from experience. To be a stranger in this world, you need to have self-control. Now, what are some ways we can look in that mirror for self-control? There's some popular ways that we lack self-control. One of them would be our spending with money. When you get some money, do you have to spend it? Or even before you get money, do you go into debt to spend it because you see things you want? I've got to buy some new clothes. I've got to buy more ammunition. I've got to buy... Is our spending being self, under self-control or am I being urged towards it? What about eating? Do I eat when I'm stressed out to feel better? Do I eat even when I'm not hungry or am I self-controlled? Well, confession, you know that it's not healthy to after dinner time to eat for the rest of the evening. We know that, right? If you don't, hopefully you know it now. It's not healthy for you. So twice this week, I had bowls of cereal in the evening just because I wanted to. I had this, my, my flesh wanted, like, man, that sounds really good. And cereal's not good for you anyway with all the carbs and sugars in that. But is our eating controlled by the flesh or control? Are we under self-control? What about drinking? Drinking too much. Now, Scripture tells us that getting drunk is a sin, right? It is. But it doesn't say that consuming alcohol is a sin. But have you ever stopped to consider, God, do you even want me to drink? Am I being controlled by the world? Because it's real popular have a drink. I was told by some friends out on the, in the Pacific Northwest that when I come there and if they offer me wine or a beer that I'm being very rude to them if I won't take it. I'm like, well, I got personal conviction from God's word that I'm not going to take it. And 
I'm not worried about what the world says, but I'm going to be self-controlled in that area. When it comes to that, okay, consider what does God want me to even do with that? Our mouths get us in trouble. Peter's mouth got him in trouble. Do you have self-control over what you say? Uh, do profanities come out before even thinking about it? Does gossip come out? Do you have a critical spirit criticizing everybody all the time? Do you get angry and yell at people? Or are you self-controlled with your mouth? What about physical restraint? Do you show physical restraint when you get angry? I've shown my kids at my mom's house, at grandma's house, there's a, a room in our house that's got a, a hole in the ceiling. You see, my mom doesn't have uh, drywall ceilings or these ceiling tiles in, in the home. And at one time, one of my brothers was carrying around a plate of macaroni and cheese and eating off that plate, walking through the house, and in this room, he dropped this plate of food on the ground. And I saw it. It was amusing to me. It wasn't amusing to him because he jumped up and he punched a hole in the ceiling. And it's there today. You can go there today and see that that's a lack of physical restraint. So when you get angry, do you break things and lose self-control? What about, what about abusing people? I just want to say that. If you're being abused by somebody physically to get out and call the authorities, that's the authority's job because that is breaking the law to abuse somebody. And a lawbreaker needs to face the consequences of that. Call the authorities, call the police, and have that person arrested. We do not endorse abuse. We do not say stay in that abusive relationship and forgive. We say get out of there. That person needs help. Let the consequences fall. And then we can forgive without trusting, and there's a whole process to that, but if somebody's not showing physical restraint, we need to address that. If you're not follow, if you're not showing physical restraint, that needs to be addressed. There's other ways that we lack self-control. Time management. Sometimes we can waste our time, maybe being entertained, sitting in front of a screen all day, instead of reading books or spending time the way God wants us to. What about exercise? I'm a, another um, full disclosure here. I haven't exercised regularly in months. Uh, am I a steward of my body or am I lazy when it comes to these things? Peter said that a stranger in this world shows self-control. We exercise self-control. Let's keep reading. We've only been in one verse so far. We better keep going. Verse 14. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In other words, be self-controlled. Don't conform to these passions and, and uh, inclinations that you had. Verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. Now where is this written? Well, it's written three times in Leviticus. Chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, be holy because God is holy. Leviticus 19, 2, be holy because the Lord is holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, be holy because he is holy. So a stranger lives a life of holiness. Now what does this word holiness mean? It literally means to be sacred. Something sacred is not common. Something sacred is set apart. So when we sing... That 
the Lord is holy, it means that he is set apart. He is above all. He's in a different zip code than everything and everyone else. He's uncommon. Christ is holy. He is set apart. As his disciples, we're strangers. We live holy. We live an uncommon, set-apart life. It's different than the rest of the world. We don't talk the same as the rest of the world. We don't do the same things. We don't laugh at the same things. I remember as a high school baseball player, we were on the, the baseball bus coming home from a game that we lost, and some of the guys on the team were telling dirty jokes on the bus. All the players were laughing, the coach was laughing, and I was laughing. I was a believer in Christ, growing in Christ, following Christ. And I remember as I'm laughing at these jokes, my one friend sitting behind me said to me, you know, Joel, I'm really surprised that you're laughing at these jokes because I thought you were different than that. And it really convicted me because I wasn't living holy. I was living a common, just like everyone else. You see, in this world, there's a certain set of standards that people live by. Do whatever you want. Do what makes you happy. But we look strange to the world when we live by Christ's standards. And I'm going to suggest there's two areas of standards that we live by that imitate Christ. The first one is character. Our character is holy and different and set apart. See, we live with honesty in a world that doesn't necessarily value honesty. We live with humility in a world that doesn't necessarily value humility. We live with generosity, not stinginess or selfishness. We live with love for other people more than love for ourselves. We live obedient to God's word. We live with kindness. We're firm, but we're kind. One of the biggest ways that our character is different is the area of repentance. You see, in our world, everybody sins. Everybody makes mistakes. But in the world, we try to cover it up. We try to blame other people. We try to make excuses. But as a follower of Christ, as a stranger, we own it. Say it's true. I did that. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? That's repentance. That's humility. That's different character. That's holiness. So we pick on the character of Christ. The second thing is the priorities of Christ. You see, in this world, we want to be served. But following Christ, we are servants. We serve others rather than trying to be served. Now, I, I travel quite a bit. In fact, this afternoon, I, I'm not flying, but driving up to north of Lansing, Michigan. I'm leading a retreat tomorrow and Tuesday for tomorrow and Tuesday for some pastors up there in Michigan. Uh, but when I fly on a plane, I'm in airports often, and I know a guy who flies just as much as I do. When he goes into the bathrooms, what he said is he always looks, is there trash on the floor that he can pick up? And he does that because Christ is watching, and Christ is in him, and he wants to serve Christ. You might say, that's kind of nasty, picking up stuff off the bathroom floor. And what he says is he takes a uh, paper towel as he dries his hands, and with that paper towel, picks the stuff up and puts it in the trash. But that's the heart of a servant, the priority of somebody that's holy. So we're, we're servants not expecting to be served. We're givers 
not expecting to receive. We're, we're not takers, we're, we're givers. Our priority is we want to grow in life. Grow in Christ. Grow as a disciple. Become mature. That's my goal. I want to make other disciples and influence people around me. Reach my neighbors with the gospel. One of our other priorities is this on Sunday morning. Is that we gather together. That's important that we're here. That we gather together. That's a priority. That we can encourage each other. Be encouraged. If I'm going to grow in holiness and live as a stranger, we need this time together. We need to feed on God's word. That's a priority. And then his word and prayer. Those are priorities. That's how we're strangers. We are we're holy. We're set apart. We're peculiar. Different than everyone. Let's look at verse 17. Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, and that's good news, that no matter whether you're rich or poor, uh, old or young, no matter what ethnicity you are, God judges our works impartially. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent Fear. Now, we're going to talk about this reverent fear in a moment, but let me just emphasize this word stranger again. Uh, what it means is that you're not like everyone else. You stick out. You shine in the darkness. Um, we are aliens. We're not from here. We're foreigners in the current culture. Now, think about the current Roman culture of that time. In 64 AD, as Peter wrote this, their culture was really defined by three things. First of all, it was a culture of moral depravity, immorality. Uh, there was slavery that was common and rampant. There was just common dishonesty. You couldn't trust anybody to be straight with you or tell you the truth. There was a, a clever scheming to prosper in that culture. There was a selfishness, a gluttony. There was an extreme lust and sexuality about that culture. Both hetero and homosexuality were driving that culture. There was a moral depravity. Second part of that culture was there was a bloodlust in that culture. The Roman Colosseum was full throttle. Violence was a commonplace in life. The gladiators fought each other. The gladiators slaughtered slaves for the amusement of the masses. Murder was common as people flocked to go watch it happen. There was a moral depravity, there was a bloodlust, and there was also a religious variety in the culture of that time. There were multiple Roman gods that were worshipped. There were multiple temples, not just in Rome, but in Asia Minor, where Peter wrote this letter to. There were temples in all these cities towards these gods. In fact, the Roman emperors at that time, they considered themselves a god, and they demanded the people to worship them. That's one of the things that motivated Nero to burn down Rome and blame the Christians, is they refused to worship him. There was this religious variety that was expected in that culture. And Peter was telling the followers of Christ, as you strive, that, that as you are strangers in this culture, First of all, strive to live a morally impeccable life, not this moral depravity, because you're strangers. We're different. Strive to live a life that's peaceful, not violent, like the Romans and their bloodlust. We're strangers. 
We believe in one true God. And Jesus Christ is God. We don't recognize these other false gods. We're strangers. If we fit into the world around us, and we blend right in, and no one can tell the difference, we're not strangers. Do I talk like the world talks? Do I have the same priorities that the world has? Do I watch the same shows? Do I laugh at the same jokes? Do I have the same habits that the world has? See, we do not fit in here. We're strangers here. Peter also said in verse 17 that strangers, we live in reverent fear. And he's not talking about fearing the government or fearing Nero or the Roman Empire for your life because you're going to face persecution. But he says, fear God who judges our work impartially. Look beyond this world to the next world. Have a reverence for God, a fear for God, because I'm going to be judged by God. We're all going to stand before him, and he will judge our works. And there's two outcomes there. If you're a believer in Christ, there's two outcomes. One of them is rewards. The other one is regrets. You see, there will be believers in Christ who will end up in heaven, praise God for the forgiveness of our sins through Christ, but if I do nothing for Christ on earth, I will have nothing to show for it in heaven. As citizens of heaven, strangers on earth, we live for the other side. We serve Christ now, live for Christ now, priorities and character of Christ now, these things that store up rewards for us later. Because of the work, remember last week, that God has done, he saved us, he sanctified us, he chose us, he's at work in our lives. We should be thankful. We should revere him. Just like the believers in 64 AD. Don't fear the government or the world around you. Revere and fear Christ. This is what Hebrews 28, or 12, 28, and 29 says. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, we get heaven, we get treasure in heaven from Christ. Let us be thankful for what he's done. And so worship God. God acceptably with reverence and awe, reverence and, and fear for our God is a consuming fire. That's what we try to do when we gather on Sunday morning. When we sing these songs in worship, they're not songs to make us feel good. They're songs to recognize God's great work. That's why we ascribe to him glory and strength and power. We want to have reverent fear of God. Verse 18, Peter keeps going, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Now he's telling us why we should revere God. We were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us from our forefathers. But we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's why we show reverence, because of Christ. Verse 20, He, Christ, was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last days for your sake. So we revere him. Verse 21, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and so your faith and hope are in God. We revere him because of all these things he's done for us. And now, last couple verses here. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Let me stop for a second. We just read that Christ purified us. 
with his precious blood. He redeemed us. He's the one who purified us. We're unable to purify ourselves. But Peter's saying here, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, we're going to look at that in a second, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, this is what we do as strangers. We love one another deeply from the heart. We're going to look at this purity thing in a second, but first let's tackle this, this love one another from the heart. Now this specific word for love means brotherly love. Maybe you've heard the word phileo before, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. This is phileo, treat each other. He's talking about the church here. Treat each other like family. So as a church, we love each other like family. In other words, we love each other deeply, genuinely. We show hospitality to each other. We have fellowship with each other. That's why we do this first Sunday fellowship every month. We have a warmth towards each other. We share with each other. We carry each other's burdens. When somebody is down, we help pick them up. We have this love one for another. And that's how we live as strangers. It's different than the world. And he also said there in verse 22, we want to spend some time here, on this idea of purity. A stranger purifies himself. Now this word, purity, means to be morally clean. Now I've already mentioned in this first century Roman culture, it was an unclean culture, an impure culture, an immoral culture. And as followers of Christ, we're different. We're strangers. We live morally pure in this culture that we live in. Now, remember, verse 18 and 19 said that they were purified, redeemed by the blood of Christ. So on one hand, Christ has already made us pure. But on the other hand, we try to live as pure. Let's look at this. In 1 John 1, verse 7 and verse 9, it says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's a benefit, a byproduct of following Christ, as we fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, it purifies us from all sin. We're clean before God because of Christ, if we believe in Christ and trust him and ask him to forgive our sins. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, Christ, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He forgives our sins, takes them away, and he scrubs us clean. So we are pure before God because of Christ. It's not just there. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the exact representation of his being. Christ sustains all things by his powerful word, and after he provided purification for sins on the cross, he provided that if we put our faith in him, <coughs> ask him to forgive our sins, after that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So on one hand, Christ has purified us positionally before God. You're clean before God. But on the other hand, now the rest of our lives, we live as strangers living in purity. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Since we have these promises of forgiveness of sins through Christ, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, 
perfecting holiness, we talked about that, out of reverence, we talked about that, for God. So we've been made pure, and we strive to live pure. 1 John, verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God. We are, because we've been made pure by Christ. And what we will be has not, been, has not yet been made known to us. He's talking about our glorified bodies in the future. After we die, these bodies will either be cremated or put into the ground, and we will get a new body. If you're a believer in Christ, if believers in Christ have died, they have a new body right now. We don't know what it's going to be yet, but we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. We shall have a glorified body like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him, this is what we do. We purify ourselves just as he is pure. That's what strangers do. That's what we purify ourselves. That's what Peter did for the past 37 years of his life. That's what he was imploring followers of Christ to do, to purify themselves. And we've just got a few more verses in, um, in our reading today in chapter 1. Uh, these first verses, they tell us why we purify ourselves. This is why we do it. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Because of that, we purify ourselves. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. So we're going to die someday. That's why we purify ourselves, so that we can have treasure in heaven on the other side. The Lord, the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. That's the why we purify ourselves. And now we're going to close up the very first three verses of chapter 2 that tells us the what. Some specific ways that we purify ourselves. Verse 1. Therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Where do we get this milk? That's from the Word of God, which we just read stands forever. So that by it you may grow up. That's the goal, to look in the mirror and that we grow in our maturity in Christ. You may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, last slide. Specific ways, looking in the mirror, that we purify ourselves. First of all, I said, rid yourselves of malice. What is malice? Malice is hate. Uh, having hateful thoughts, having a hateful heart, having hateful behavior, violence towards people. If I'm controlled by anger, easily angered, confess that and turn from it. That's how we become pure, by getting rid of the hate and the anger and the malice. The second word is this word deceit. And this word deceit means, <coughs> excuse me, any form of dishonesty is deceit. It's not just telling a lie. You can actually tell the truth but be lying, can't you? Can you see my pinky finger? It bends the wrong way. It's not that I'm double-jointed, it's that I broke that finger when I was in college. You see, I was on the basketball team for the college, and during basketball season, a group of seniors wanted to play the group of freshmen in a football game one Sunday afternoon. So I said, I love football, let's go play football. Well, in that game, 
I was rushing the passer. He went to make a throw, and I jumped up, and the ball hit my finger, broke my finger. It swelled up. It hurt like crazy. I'm thinking, what am I going to tell the basketball coach? My thought was, well, I'm not going to tell him anything. I went through practice the next day on Monday, and my finger was huge, and it hurt. And I went up to the trainer after practice, and I said, my finger got hit with the ball, and I think something's wrong with it. So he taped it up, and it went like that for several weeks until it, it healed up not the right way. See, I told the trainer a fact. I told him a truth. My finger got hit with a ball, but I didn't tell him that it was a football. I deceived him. I was de being deceitful. I was telling the truth while telling a lie. Can that happen? It happens all the time in politics. When a politician will spin what is a fact to make it sound favorable to them, that's dishonesty. That's deceit. Get rid of all deceit. Don't put a spin on things. Don't justify things. Confess and turn from it. Confess and turn from hypocrisy. What's this word hypocrisy mean? It means play acting. A hypocrite was an actor. Somebody was pretending to be something. When you pretend to be something that you're not, when you're one way in public and another way in private, that's hypocrisy. The word for integrity, we've heard the word, that's sort of like the opposite of hypocrisy. Integrity comes from the word integrated. So when the public me and the private me are integrated, when I'm one and the same in public and in private, then I have integrity. When they're different, public and private, that's hypocrisy. So if I act one way at home and another way at church, putting on a good face, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a play actor. If I act one way at home and another way at school, I'm a hypocrite. Two different things. Play actor. One way at home, another way at work, or one way at church and another way at work, I'm a hypocrite. I'm a, a play actor. He says, get rid of hypocrisy. Be the same person. Be a transformed, strained, holy, and pure person. Get rid of hypocrisy. He said also, get rid of envy. Confess and turn from envy. What is envy? Envy is, is jealousy. I see somebody else has a certain gift or has a certain <clears throat> uh, possession, and I want it. I'm jealous of that person. I'm envious. I want that thing that they have. And that's where lust comes from. It was prevalent in that culture. You know, lust is when I see something else, usually something sexual, and I want that thing. And that lust, it was a major driving force in the Roman culture. And it's a major driving force in our world today. Think of the money that is spent in the pornography industry, capitalizing on envy and lust. The human trafficking, I don't even want to call it an industry, but it's big business. There's people on both sides of that, perpetrators stealing and, and, and enslaving people, and the people who are buying them, <coughs> big business. Um, if you got TikTok on your phone, what drives TikTok? I'm sure there's some positive things on it. I don't have it, but that's driven by lust and the images that are put on there. Chat rooms where people can talk to each other and, and engage in, in lustful, jealous, envious discussions. Or Hollywood. Hollywood's driven by it. The movies that they put out, the people there, driven by envy and lust. And politics. Politics is the same thing. Get rid of envy. And finally, get rid of slander. 
confess and turn from slander. Slander is, is simply evil speech. Any form of evil speech, whether it's gossip, whether it's lying, whether it's profanity, whether it's criticizing, berating people, whether it's bragging and boasting, whether it's flattery. Gossip is when you say something behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is when you say something to their face that you wouldn't say about them behind their back. You're trying to pump them up, but really don't believe it. That's flattery. Confess and turn from that. And finally, Peter says, feed yourself regularly on God's word. Crave that spiritual milk. Why do we feed ourselves on God's word? It's because we live in a culture and in a world with an enemy that's at war against us. Next week, we're going to see this verse in 1 Peter 2, which says, And dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world, to abstain from the sinful desires, so have self-control, they war against our soul. It's a battle, and our defense and our weapon is God's word. So he says, feed yourself regularly on God's word. That's how we live as strangers, having a mind that's on offense and defense, having self-control against the world, the flesh, and the devil, living in holiness where we are set apart, different priorities, different character. We have a reverent fear of God, storing up treasure in heaven, not living for what fades on earth. We love one another. We're a family. We need each other to be strangers in this world. And we live in purity by getting rid of some things and feeding on God's word. That's how we live. That's our mirror today. Uh, let's take a look at it and ask God to grow us as a stranger. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for these words from Peter, and he's such a practical person, and, and he's speaking from experience because he had, he had fallen far, but then you raised him back up again, and, and Lord, that might be the same as many of us, where we have, we've all wandered, we've all strayed, we, we thank you for the work you've done, Father, saving us, sustaining us, working in our lives to grow us. I pray that we cooperate with that, Lord, and strive to live as strangers, strive to, to be different in this world, to bring honor to you, to bring pleasure to you, to have great treasure stored up in, tre in heaven uh, that we receive from you. Pray that we live that way, Lord, that uh, everybody in, in, our, in our church family, whether uh, a year old in Christ or 50 years old in Christ, that we would continue to grow and continue to help each other, that we would make other disciples who can grow as well, Father. Help us to live as strangers this week. Picking out one thing that you spoke to us today and, and letting you work on it this week. We pray, Father, through Jesus.